You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. What Bruno Yule Heard, Part 1. As a child in the 1940s, Bruno Yule was often taken for malted milkshakes. A Romanian immigrant had invented a process for converting the noise produced by the city's subway system into a small quantity of electrical energy. It's the Niagara Falls of noise, enough to power the motors of a hundred malted milk mixers. Finally, someone has put that cacophony to good use. The current was fed to a dozen corner stands. I want a chocolate local. Via a network of brittle, heavy-gauge wires... In ten years, the novelty had worn thin. I can taste the dirty wicker seats. Let's go somewhere else. Ben Catchor is the creator of Julius Knippel, real estate photographer. He's contributed comics and drawings to The New Yorker, Metropolis Magazine, and weekly newspapers around the United States. His new book is Hand Drying in America. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Thank you. This is an amazing book, and what you do is really unique. I've never seen anything quite like it. What you do is most precisely described as urban fantasy, and that these stories you tell are all imbued with this fantastic sense of the imagination. But everything's askew. So I'd like you to just tell me a little bit about when did you first encounter the idea of recreating a city to your own design? Well, it's my uh, literary project. I grew up reading comic strips, and about around the age of 18 or something, outgrew the content of those comic strips, superheroes and adventure stories. And I wanted to make a kind of comic strip or picture story that would interests me as a reader, and I looked at a lot of, I mean, I, I studied painting and English literature in school because no one was teaching comics at that time. And I tried to build these stories as very concise. They're one or two page stories because they appeared originally in an architecture magazine. And I tried to build them as almost philosophical arguments in so many stages because they're, they're short. They're t- 15 to 20 moments in time. And I lead the reader through this argument, and of course it's going to hit like a Socratic argument. It's going to hit the absurdity of the world. It has to come up because the world that we live in is the one plan, everything is, starts out as a plan on paper, and this is the one plan that found material realization. The million other plans ended up in people's drawers and in garbage cans. I think through fiction, you can open up that space of alternative worlds. And it's a very subversive thing to do. I understand that in China, they've outlawed speculative fiction or science fiction because once you get people questioning the way the world is and maybe thinking about alternative ideas, you can upset the, the power structure. So it's a, it's a, I, I hope it's a fairly subversive book. I mean, It's interesting, and I'm really glad you brought up the idea of speculative fiction because I think that these stories imbue fantasy at its best. So I'd like you to talk about coming up with the ideas for these kind of visionary stories where you just take one idea and spin it through. Yeah, they're short stories. So I don't want 
a reader to be lost in this stupor of fiction, you know, this long um, imaginary world. I want, I want to kind of uh, put them into it and abruptly pull them out of it. And, I mean, that's the structure of these things. And they're based, and I've lived my whole life in cities, so they are based on observation as a user of the city and a user of this economy. If I see something, I mean, everywhere you look, there's a subject for a story. That's one thing that's so interesting. I love how many opportunities you find for fantasy. You can find fantasy in a light switch. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a, 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 you know, the idea of of fantasy driven by um, unicorns or uh, uh, these imaginary creatures seems a little, uh, it's too easy for me. I want to think about the fantasy of uh, malted milkshakers and light switches and what, how those things could have rich alternative uh, worlds behind them. That's what's driving me. It's interrogating the world as it is, just like a, a scientist. So some people say, well, this is all about this um, kind of minutia, this inconsequential stuff. And I would say, well... When a scientist looks at a human cell under an electron microscope, is that like an inconsequential pursuit? I think these are the building blocks of reality. And the smaller you can analyze them, on the, the smaller the level becomes, the more you can pick them apart. So there is a scientific kind of approach to my storytelling. It doesn't dwell on... 19th century novelistic concerns too much, like making up phony characters and involving you in a melodrama. They're short. The characters live and die in a page. So you're always abruptly brought back to your own predicament. I don't want, I don't want to make a kind of comic strip that's an escapist uh, literature. I think that's one of the dangers of speculative fiction. You just want to live in the book and then you don't want to face your own predicament. But I like to um, keep the reader always thrown back. I sort of actually um, almost destroy those kinds of um, novelistic pleasures where you'd want to wallow in this stuff. You want to get out of it and look at your own predicament and say, you know, this is horrible. Why, why do we have these, these things going on in the world? So, I mean, in that sense, it's, a, it's um, as political as art can be, I think. I would agree. You know, it's political in the same way that uh, George Luis Borges' stories were. Uh, he would give, take something and have a, a very absurd premise, but that it would, it would lead to... Uh, lead you back to this world. Yeah. I mean, this is an absurd world. So how, what, <laughs> what other approach can you take but absurdist literature to talk about it? I mean, that's, that's what I've discovered. And, uh, and your stories, too, I think, also follow his in, in the sense that, uh, and you alluded to this, there are not 19th century novelistic concerns. And though in some of the stories, you'll give us characters. And mostly they're kind of like faux documentaries. They're documentaries of stuff that doesn't exist but could. Yeah, they, they have this um, utilitarian feel to them. At least that's how I think of them. I set out, I have not a problem to solve. I mean, it's hard to talk about them in the abstract. I could... Pick some, some story. Yeah, like this one, a date in architectural history. It's about a woman who's living in a, a 19th century ornate house, calling her boyfriend, who is in a uh, working in a, a high-rise international-style skyscraper. She's kind of turned off by the idea of meeting him in this building, and. And he's saying, you know, you can't blame someone for where they live, the building they live in. It just happens. This is where my my company was. And uh, I live in another kind of building. And you should 
you know, see these things as for what they are. You know, they were once considered ele elegant buildings and they had this great sense of design. And so those kind of prejudices that we have about where our friends live as though they have any choice in the matter. I like the one where the river view is imprinted on the windows. Yeah. And they, they, they repackage the windows as art. Yeah, it's something I, I've heard about animals that have been um, dissected and there were actually imprints of images on their retinas. And I thought that, I know that when a window sits in the sun a long time, things, dirt and things get baked into it. And I thought possibly the actual light rays of the view might be baked into a window in some way. And in that strip, somebody in the, in the window replacement business, you know, they saw this gigantic job being done in a, a high-rise a residential project where all of the windows were, were ripped out to be updated. And they said, if we can gather these old windows, we could sort of sell them as almost photographic objects because there's this period views of this river the river view and they go about trying to find those discarded windows so it's a long i mean it's hard to paraphrase these things because it's like they're like it's like paraphrasing a poem plus there's a visual aspect which you can't see on the radio and the the visual part of these strips is my handwriting, and it's as important, I think, as the the, the prose. So, uh, now I'd like you to just talk about creating one of these uh, things. Let's say you come up with uh, the 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 slug bearers of Kyral, for example. Yeah, that one actually was made into an opera, into a um, a musical theater piece. Was that with Bang on, on a No, can? that was with a pop musician named Mark Mulcahy. He was in a band called Miracle Legion in the 80s. He did all the music for that, the Pete and Pete, uh, the Nickelodeon TV show. He's a great Boy, my kids used to watch musician. that show. Yeah. Well, if you hear the music in your mind, that's Mark's music. Anyway, it's about a strange phenomenon in the physical world, and that is that the as the mechanisms for electronic equipment like telephones and can openers became miniaturized. The objects lost their heft and weight. And so routinely, lead slugs are screwed into the body of most appliances that we use, especially handheld things. I'm not sure if an iPhone is weighted, but it, I think it may be. And... Um, Telephones are otherwise they would blow off of your desk. They wouldn't have much weight. They're made of they're hollow plastic shells. If you open a desk telephone, there's nothing to it. And um, this story is about a um, an imaginary island somewhere in the South China Sea, where these lead slugs are made and and transported and sort of shipped around the world. So it's the, it's the worthless slug of lead that gives this um, impression of material worth to other objects. Uh, so, yeah, you have to read it. It's, now, okay, well, what, what I'm interested in is you come up with this idea. You, you, you have this concept. Yeah, I can tell and, you how and, I thought of that. And you jotted it down. I had a, one of these cheap, you know, princess phones, mm -hmm. and it fell off of my desk and broke open, and there was this slug of lead. I mean, a very crude slug of lead held in place with two screws. And I just said, what is this? And then I started looking into the matter and came up with this, with this story. Now, uh, when you write the story, do you write the prose first, or do you <clears throat> sketch out the page and say, this is how I want to move the story? Uh, no, I start with prose just because it's easier for me to write, uh, to juggle the, the, um, the symbols of words. I can write in bed. I can write on the subway. And I like to keep the story in, in flux until the last minute, hoping I, I'll get it come up with a better idea. And um, 
It's less of an investment of energy for me to write than to draw. And then when I think I have the story, or at least the, the, the gist of the story, I start drawing it. And then as I make the images, they kind of correct the text. And there's a back and forth between the, the two. So I would edit the text again as I make the images. But as they're all done on a deadline, and as I wait till the last minute, hoping to come up with a better story, I have to draw these pretty quickly. And uh, that's just the way it goes, the process. Do you have two or three stories sitting around at once for every <clears throat> deadline? If this is a weekly deadline, I mean, you might have two Well, or three yeah, or... this is a monthly, the, oh. the, the strips in Metropolis. I have a little bit of a backup, but, um, you know, after many years, you kind of exhaust the obvious... Uh, my friend, you you exhausted the obvious when you started on this journey. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's nothing obvious in right. any one of these stories. That's that may be, but you, um, it gets harder and harder. I mean, it's agony to make these things. It's not um, an easy thing to do, and so I feel like at the beginning, when I turn a strip in, I feel like I'm. Uh, you know, starting from scratch, and I have to sort of say again, what is this world about, and, you know, what am I, what are the possible subject matters? Uh, yeah, it's, um, that's the process. Observation in life interrogated to its, uh, an absurd um, conclusion. And they're not, you know, they don't end, that leaves the reader in, the, in this argument, and they can go, go figure it out for themselves. And, you know, if they don't like these blank walls behind, there's a strip about in modern uh, developments in cities, there are always blank walls right on the street, you know, around behind near the, near the um, parking the lot, or the park, what do you call it, where you drive a truck in, the loading dock these incredibly boring spaces developed in the middle of a city that should have a, a fabric of fascinating street-level stores. And, I mean, if you don't like that because of how I've described it, you should go out and try to change that and demand people don't build things like that. So This appears, as I said, in the back of an architecture magazine, and a lot of the readers are architects and designers. So... I hope it it has some effect on them. You're trying to foment an architectural revolution. Well, architecture, you know, is tied up. It's the real, it's not theoretical architecture. Architecture that's realized in the world meets economics, and that's where all these problems begin. Uh, Did you study architecture? Only as, uh, uh, not uh, formally, but I've read a lot about it, and I lived in cities all my life, so I know what it means to live in, in architecture. <laughs> One of the things I think that's so amazing uh, uh, about this book is uh, the variety of approaches you have with terms to color, and uh, the, in some of the strips, we have full color. Some of them, we have this duo color. There are some in monocolors. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the stories are much more concentrated. Other times, they're spread out. So I'd like you to talk about selecting, for example, behind Stye Center, which is about the blank walls. That's mm -hmm. a full four-color yeah. uh, piece. And the story about the lead weights in your princess phone. Yeah. That's a that's a two-color piece. Yeah. Is yeah. that is that a choice um, made by the magazine? By no, you? no, no. It's I edit the page of the magazine. They let me do whatever I want. So it's a very rare add. magazine. Yeah. Um I as I start drawing the strip, I um come up with some feeling for what the color scheme should be, whether it should be this full range of colors or a limited palette. It's a decision. It's a, it's a kind of an art graphic decision I make. It sort of t changes the tone, the, the temperature. Actually, the color temperature 
of the strip changes. Mm-hmm. So there are cooler strips, warmer strips. I never thought about it yeah. as in terms of temperature, yeah, but that's like the case. Yeah, this is a very cool, this one about the body heat snatcher. I wanted, it's about a man who goes around the city collecting residues of body heat from recently vacated seats, like in the subway. It's a kind and of a so, vampire figure, in a sense. Well, I thought of a body heat vampire, and so... I wanted the world to be a cool blue, and at those spots where there were residues of body heat, they become a, a warm yellow, and that's why that's in those two colors. So there's a, I mean, there's a logic to it. Then there are strips that are more about, that really depend on depicting a, a, a known place in a world, like the inside of a Chinese restaurant, and it needs the full world palette. I just want to show you what it might really look like. And those will be in more full color. A strip about the false forest. It's a forest built for hay fever sufferers of artificial trees. So it's predominantly in uh, forest colors, greens and, you know, pale greens and things. So sometimes the theme actually dictates the... uh, the that's color. That's what um, I was looking for. Was is how often the theme does, and how often it just it, kind of happened. You make well, it does. Mm-hmm. Like this one about the the interior of this this old style Chinese restaurant where everything is sort of dark reds and uh, and yellows, warm colors. It dominates the strip. So, in a, really, in a good strip, uh, the color should be an extension of the subject matter. I mean, if I, I mean, I, know, I don't sit around analyzing that, but it's true. So this, and then if there's a strip where I want one object to stand out, such as a strip about the high visibility, these construction vests that people wear, I wanted them to stand out, so I made the rest of the strip a kind of a neutral gray, and the the vests are the strong orange and reds of those vests. But that's. It's thematically driven. It's not like a matter of uh, decoration. I mean, it's all... Uh, it's, I mean, it has no decorative purpose. Mm-hmm. It's pure uh, function in the strip, the color. You know, I love your sense of fantasy in the way that you invent things. And I'd like you to talk about... Um, it, it's very <clears throat> rigorous, what you do. I mean, the way you interrogate the world and the things you create, they're all essentially at once extremely realistic things that could very well be done but haven't due to you know some essentially arbitrary choice and one of the things these strips all point out is how arbitrary our current reality is compared to these kind of choices where you say well what if so i'd like you to talk about discovering the opportunities for what if well, I I mean, if you live in this world you have, and you have any social awareness, you know, you're not living in a bubble somewhere, you, you're full of discontents about the world, you know, from <laughs> on every level and on every, every way you turn, there's something that could be better. This is not the best of all possible worlds. It's the one, it's kind of a default world. So when I walk around uh, Manhattan, where I live, and I see, you know, every other block there's a Starbucks, and it makes my walk into this boring uh, situation, I just, I have a, there's a great theme for an alternative reality, a city, you know, where those things don't dominate the landscape. So it's out of, yeah, I would say it's out of discontent. I mean, who's content with this world? Do you know anyone? <laughs> uh, Mark Zuckerberg? <laughs> well, may, uh, yeah, maybe. maybe even he has problems. But um, so that's what drives a lot of the strips. I mean, it's what drives what drives science. People want to understand these mysteries, and you know, a mystery is kind of a discontent. I don't know why. Why do people get sick? Why do things happen? 
um, on a on a biological level. I want to know why they happen on a uh, socioeconomic level. That's an interesting notion to investigate our reality by creating alternate realities. Well, I, I think that's what's behind really good science fiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not escapist science fiction, you know, space operas, stuff like that. I'm talking about... Um, I read a lot of science fiction as a kid, but the um, and now I can't I, like to, I can't give you a good example, but um, you know the the, the well, uh, there's always 1984. That's a, a yeah, fine, a things fine example. that um, really well, uh, talk about alternative worlds and uh, not in cliched ways. Or well, Orwell wanted to call 1984 1948. <laughs> and yeah. his publisher said, no, 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 that's a little too close to home, my friend. Yeah. So um, that's what drives this. I mean, if it's, you don't make things, I mean, if without these irritants, I'd be, you know, lying on a uh, on a deck somewhere in Tahiti, I don't know, in a, in a, in a gated community, and I would not be worried about anything, but I'm... I live, you know, in Manhattan, and I work in Manhattan in this current world, and I see people in pretty uh, dire straits everywhere. So, uh, and the world in dire straits, you know. So, what I mean, what other subject is there but alternative realities, rethinking the whole thing from scratch, you know? You know, one of the strips you had is about. Uh, a man who decides he wants to charge people for looking at the building. And, and I'm wondering if this was inspired in part by a, a move where um, since 9-11 there have been more and more incidents where when people are taking photographs of buildings, they've been told by you know security guards who have no right to do so, you can't take a picture of that building. You might yeah. be a terrorist. Was that inspired by that? I mean, partly the whole idea of the privatization of public space. I mean, in New York, that's a really big issue, probably in every city in America. Businesses would like to control the private sphere. And, you know, where does that end up? Controlling what you look at. Somebody can say, don't look at my building. It's a private building and there's an admission fee. I mean, there's an admission fee to the movies. Why shouldn't there be an admission fee to looking at a building? And it sounds absurd, but I don't think it is. I can see that happening. Um, you know, the whole, the, that, that, that urge to privatize things in this world. And um, Well, there's another strip, too, about a project to put benches for, in public spaces in business districts, and, and it results in people... Rather than people window shopping and buying, they sit down and enjoy the view, which ends up being restricted. Yeah. It's a very dystopian vision in your point. Yeah. I, I don't remember exactly how that's played out, that strip. Um, in the very last panel, we see uh, one of the benches has caution police tape over it so you can't sit on it anymore. Yeah. So it's kind of trying to make a gesture toward a public amenity and it backfiring. On the uh, the business district, yeah, that could ha- that that can happen. Uh, it it interests me too. I think that to a degree, um, your vision reminds me of what uh, something Kim Stanley Robinson, a science fiction writer, once said to me, which is that we're living in a bad science fiction novel. Right now, that we live in the future. It's 2001 without without the beautiful music in space, without the Pan Am space um, yeah. shuttle. They couldn't. Pan Am had this skyscraper, you know, on 42nd Street, and they couldn't land a helicopter on it. The, there was a crash, and that was the end of their uh, science fiction plans for flying helicopters into Midtown Manhattan. Right, these plans are, are devised often with, by people who are not really looking at the um, the realities of human, you know, needs and human uh, problems. Uh, you get this uh, 
this bad science fiction world. I mean, it just came from L.A., which is, I mean, it's in gridlock. It's insane. Everyone is in an SUV, and that the hours when everyone goes out, no one can walk anywhere, you know, unless you're in a little neighbor. There's few neighborhoods that are walkable, but if you want to go between neighborhoods, you need a car because the scale of the city is, you know, not a human scale. You, you can't really get anywhere. And it's just gridlock. I mean, it's uh, it's an inch away from total gridlock. I, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. The highway looks. I mean, it's just still. <laughs> it's kind of frightening. And um, well, how so does that compare you know, to New York City? New York, look. I mean, Midtown Manhattan looks like a small village next to that. You can walk everywhere because the whole island is just a few miles long. If you have time, you can walk, and it is very walkable. Plus, there are people on the street, and it's conducive to walking. Somebody there said, you don't want to walk. go walking from this hotel. There's nobody on the street, and it's a kind of a dangerous situation, they said. So each thing feeds, you know, another horrible situation. Nobody's walking. Nobody's, people are scared to walk. Nobody walks, even if people, I mean, it's, it's a pretty sad uh Place. And uh, yet there are all these people with a lot of money to, you know, to buy cars. And um, so I don't know. If it ha- I know they go- they rip the the public transportation system out of the city. You know, back a long time ago, like they tried to do in New York. It's kind of uh, that's yeah, the that is a good example of uh, an idea realized that's a disaster. Private transportation. You know taken to its extreme is gridlock. It's uh, not to mention, you know, the air quality uh, and other things. Uh, Talk about the city as a character in your in your work. And also, I'm curious if you might have, you were talking about L.A. I'd love to see some of your work set in L.A. Well, I don't tend to set these stories in actual places mm-hmm. because I want the freedom of talking about my own city, which I can invent. Uh, You can invent your own city. I mean, the whole premise of this is it's fiction. And if I'm going to be tied to the the particulars of New York City, I could just as well be tied to the particulars of my own city. They're not generic cities. Mm -hmm. They're highly particular cities, but they're invented cities. Um, So... um, and that way, you know, somebody reading it anywhere in the world can sort of say, yeah, I, I understand this is a, an urban situation. It could happen in my city. or So I don't know. It's Italo Calvino is another guy who invented, yeah. he invented cities, and I think you, you do that very well. I, I'm wondering as a – when you're – there is actually one strip in here where it is New York. Yeah, but uh, occasionally that... it's about a, a situation where I need to uh, refer to an actual place in the world, but uh, that's not the usual operation of my strip. When you when you uh, create these cities, do you actually ever go out on location to draw a real building or take inspiration from a real building? Yeah, I mean, in order to imbue the drawings with all of the particularity of life, I do study the world and I study nature, you know, or man-made, the man-made world. And uh, yeah, that otherwise it would all look kind of generic and boring. So, uh, but that's kind of a drawing technique thing. How do you evoke uh, particularity? And so I use... I, all the drawing is done directly, either in ink or directly on a digital um, tablet. So it incorporates what's called the sketch aesthetic, which is all the accidents of drawing. And so those accidents kind of give the drawings this inflection of life. In other words, all the accidents of life, you know, like why is your hand the shape it is and all those accidents come into it. You can put them into a drawing through a technical a method. Uh, 
And that's what I do. Well, I think one of the things you do, too, with an astonishing economy is world building. And this is a, a, a classic science fiction technique. But yeah. again, you rebuild the real world. And I think it, to do so so concisely is it must be very difficult. Do you ever find yourself thinking that you want to like turn one of these explorations of an idea into like a longer piece, like a novel? Or? Well, I've made... Um I do music theater, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. with, this, with Mark Mulcahy, and we I, there, several of the uh, their kind of pop operas are based on strips from this series. The Slug Bearers of Carroll Island exists as a two-hour sung-through opera. The uh, Check Room Romance is a two-hour show. Uh, the Bang on the Can collaboration. Right, that's the carbon copy building started as a one-page strip, and it was made into a like a ninety-minute um, opera. So there are there are if the opportunity arises, I mean, a story is kind of um, a thing that can be divided mathematically. You can divide a story into now and then, or into four moments, or into. 15 moments or into, uh, you can sort of investigate them in, in um, depth rather than in uh, time. So they begin and end in the same, the same way they do in my strip, but I will investigate each moment um, deeper so the whole thing takes two hours rather than 15 minutes. But they're really the same story in a way. Do you write the libretto? <clears throat> yeah, I write the libretto and they use very elaborate um, scenic projections of my drawings. Wow. So you're looking at my drawings for two hours. And I think people don't even realize that my handwriting is sort of an actor in the show. You're very conscious of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has a big effect on the audience. I don't think they are conscious of it because it's just, it's there all the time. And it uses live singers and a band and the projections are both um, sequenced still images and animation, and um, yeah, they're spectacles. We haven't we've do, we do them at the JCC here in San Francisco. They always bring us out here. So uh, the last one up from the stacks that was an original story, not an adaptation of one of my strips. That's about the mechanism of bringing books up out of the stacks at the 42nd Street Library in New York, up, bringing them up to the reading room, which sounds like, you know, a uh, scant premise for a two-hour opera, but there, it's what it's about. And about the library in relation to the old 42nd Street. It's set in the 1970s. So, uh, so those always come to San Francisco. That's where a lot of people end up seeing my work in the theater. And, you know, the comic strips, because of the socioeconomic constraints of publishing, are these more concise forms of the stories, but they're the same stories. Uh, One uh, emotion I know that I get out of all these stories is they're very poignant and, and kind of melancholy. They're, I love the one about the thrift uh, the thrift uh, store slash Chinese restaurant, Ping's Chinese restaurant and the savings and loan bank. Oh, oh yeah, about how... Uh, yeah, that's something I noticed about uh, one of these grand um, neoclassical facades of a bank on the Bowery. The bank went out of business and the facade was taken over by a uh, fruit and vegetable store. That kind of... that You see that all the time in... Uh, in cities, one business goes under, and another sort of much uh, a spilled build as a business that doesn't need a building like that takes inhabits it. And um, is it sad? Is it a melancholy? It's uh, it's just the um, transience of business and human, the futility maybe of uh, the economic urge to do things. That's kind of tragic. But that's where we are. We have people feel they have to do these things. So. 
the end papers of this book are a harsh statement on the publishing <laughs> industry, and in particular this book, which I must say, Pantheon has produced a beautiful book. It's gorgeous. For people who, like myself, who like to treasure and hold books and luxuriate in these pages, the pages are thick. The The printing is absolutely spot on in every single page. Uh, did you quality check this book? And I'd like you to talk a little yeah. bit about the issues that you raise in the end papers, which is how destructive books are. A book, well, a book like this can't be produced by a by a major publisher who has the certain um, you know budget in this country anymore. So it's printed in China. Uh, that's to begin with. Um, the whole question of the ecological impact of books on the earth is something that I look into. And um, so there's this possibility of it, you know, first of all, finding or outsourcing it, getting a cheaper labor supply to make the book is one questionable practice because all of these books used to be produced by union printers in America. So the next step is, is it, you know, what is the environmental impact of paper production and ink production? <clears throat> and one of the characters comes to the realization that, well, these literary books and, you know, literary comic strips account for such a small portion of the world's print production that they don't, they're negligible and, you know, they're not, that's not what's poisoning the earth. There's a lot of other printing, you know, of junk advertising handouts and other kind of ephemeral printing that you could argue packaging and things like that are, uh, have a lot of environmental impact. Um, but these books, this reporter discovers that these books, they sell in small numbers and they're not a, they're not a uh, danger to the environment. Well, they're a danger to, I think, your book is intended to be, and I think to a certain sense is. It's a danger to anybody's satisfaction with the status quo, with yeah. reality as as given and accepted. And I'd like you to just discuss your interest in in shifting our perceptions. Well, I mean, I have an, a strong impulse toward those um, kinds of changes. But I know that if I acted on some of those impulses through various activist means, I'd end up in prison. Uh, and a lot of young people, not that I'm a young person, but e even young people are getting in a lot of trouble um, trying to do things and question things. And, um, yeah, I mean, it sounds... Uh, selfish and cowardly, but I don't want to be put in prison. And um, I think activism is a, is a dangerous thing in this culture right now. Uh, you know, people try to, uh, I mean, even this, you know, nonviolent demonstration, I was very, you know, uh, happy to when this big Occupy moment happened in New York. And I actually started through the... Um, thing called the Occupy University. We started a free weekly symposium in New York about comics. It was kind of a free school you could go to to study um, critical reading of comics. So, uh, but, you know, but more um, radical activism, like um, hacking and eco-terrorism, things like that, which is, I mean, it's what people are driven to these things, like the anarchists and, you know, czarist Russia were driven to pretty violent things. That's, uh, you, you'll, you may end up um, in prison. And, uh, As Julian Assange well knows. Yeah, and so, yeah, I mean, he's a prisoner of an embassy, and... Um, so somehow, by doing this in comic strip form, I get around uh, the constraints of the le you know of uh, the legal system. No one has uh, yet arrested somebody for speculating on breaking a window. 
I guess calling some, for somebody to do it may be a criminal offense, but making a piece of fiction about it is not yet a, a criminal offense. The so revolution that, will be uh, created as a comic strip. Well, it will. I mean, there are ways to uh, use the media in incredible organizing ways. You know, Facebook, it doesn't have to be used just to post uh, pictures of your pets. It can be used as an organizing tool. And so it, it is one of the great absurdities, again, of all of this, the, these industries, that they build structures that go out of their control. And people can just turn them around and, you know, uh, dismantle the structure with the stru with the the tools of the structure. So it's, uh, you know, it's a good time for that, I think. And um, I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, I took the route of uh, writing about these ideas rather than these other kinds of activities. Um, and uh, ideas are more powerful wedges than wedges themselves. That well, once you have the idea of a wedge, the yeah. wedges will come. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, people don't even think of these as political strips, which I think is a great thing because they end up reading them, and um, people from all spectrums of the of political thought will read these strips because, on some level, they're entertaining events uh, in comic strip form. And then when you get to the end, you know, you're left with this uh, realization. And if it, if it were packaged or set up as an overt, you know, these are strips to, uh, you know, dismantle capitalism, most people wouldn't read them. Or a lot, you know, people who are you're perfectly right. happy with the way things are working. And it's, you know, it works. For, there's still a, uh, a semblance of a middle class shrinking, but there is. And uh, so not everyone is feels that uh, pressure to do anything. But, um, but they wouldn't gravitate. Their pu publications they wouldn't gravitate to. Their radio stations they wouldn't listen to. Their websites people wouldn't listen to because they have them categorized in their mind as these are just malcontents or disgruntled people. So, I mean, this strip appears in the back of a, um, an architecture magazine. It's all about the people who are able to uh, effect uh, physical changes in the world. It's On a huge a, scale. Yeah, it's not in a an obscure political journal. Yeah, no it's not one, in the back pages. People. It's not in the analog magazine. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, Do you think you'll ever... question where, where you should be and how do you position yourself for some effect. I mean, the great history of great social theorists, I mean, they didn't... It didn't always work. I mean, it pushes things around, you know, but it doesn't... Um, that these things haven't always... It's not that simple. You can come up with a great alternative world, but it's hard to um, implement it. And yeah. that's... that's Somebody said, you know, that's who gets things done in the world. People who don't think too much and they're bullies and they get things done. People who think about the consequences of what they're doing tend not to do anything <laughs> because they can be paralyzed by that. And... Uh, well, do you think you'll ever write actual science fiction? Since you, I think you have. I think some of this is. Mm -hmm. It's just not set that far. There's that strip, the Committee for Architectural Neglect, and it oh. actually is. Yeah, that's a, a good piece one. of science fiction. It mm -hmm. takes us into the far future, and it's about this whole question of architectural preservation, and what happens when you uh, mark a building as a landmark. And it it tends to um, you know change its socioeconomic status in the city because only certain kinds of people can then afford to be in those buildings. I mean that's the worst case scenario of uh, architectural preservation. It can be done in a more uh, subtle way. 
You like a more util- you favor a more utilitarian approach. Just leave the damn thing alone. Well, I just know living in New York, the greatest time to be there and the greatest time to be in a building is when it is being neglected sort of by its owner. They're just barely collecting their rent and the place is barely being kept up. And there's a great sense of um, what I call a kind of... Um, a neglect of the building. So there's a great edifice. It's not being uh, milked for its alt, you know, it's a top profit. And I said, how can that be? Is there a way to um, kind of institutionalize that moment in time? And I proposed the Committee for Architectural Neglect. So in order to do anything with a building, it has to pass through this committee. And they just don't want anything to be done. They just want the building to play out its natural um, rate of decay and decline. And that could be hundreds of years. I mean, at least for earlier buildings. I think modern buildings wouldn't last very long without a lot of renovation. So it's my um, answer to historic, the whole idea of historic preservation. Because ruins are nice also. <laughs> but people are hesitant to make their own building into a ruin. To a degree, that's understandable. <laughs> now, <laughs> Well, not in the, big, in the long term. It isn't because it may be. Or it's just within your lifetime you don't like to see that happen. But on a historic scale, it's almost inevitable. That's the thinking of a science fiction writer, my friend. <laughs> So that is a high science fiction concept strip. Uh, when's your next book coming out? Do you know? Well, I, the, my ne- I'm worried about when my next strip is coming out, which <laughs> is, you know, I just turned one. I work on a monthly schedule, and I and then they're collected. So the next book is a history of um, dairy restaurants, and um, that's, you know, as soon as maybe hopefully in a year it'll be ready. And we, we're just sort of closing a commission for a new music theater production that has to do with the touring uh, uh, musical ensemble, a boys' choir that's touring the world. That, and that hopefully will happen around May 2014. And I hope we bring it out here. I will look forward to it, and when we do, I hope we'll talk. I've been speaking with Ben Kachar. His new collection of short stories is Hand Drying in America. Thank you for joining me, Ben. Oh, my pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.